Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, brought to you by the Lipscomb Pitts Breakfast Club. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference, so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now, here's our host, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. You are in for a treat when we talk about volunteerism, being a changemaker. We have someone who's uh, won a lot of awards. I think she has more degrees than I know even how to count. I can't count that high. So (laughs) it's a real treat. We have Dr. Sarah Pechnik. She's the founder and CEO of Volunteer Odyssey. When you look at some of the accolades, top 20 under 30, top 40 under 40 here recently. She's one of the 50 under 40 social entrepreneurs in the United States by American Express. It goes on and on and on. But uh, Dr. Sarah Pechnik, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm happy to be here with you guys today. So let's start. The fun of this, obviously, is we've had you come on the Spark and the radio show talking about Volunteer Odyssey, and we'll definitely talk about Volunteer Odyssey, your organization, as well as some of the interesting things going on, like Volio, and we'll talk about what that means. But the fun of the Changemakers podcast is we get to know you personally, so we get to hear your story and why you do what you do. So this is the uh, the fun personal side of, of Dr. Sarah Pechnik. So Let's start. I know you like to say you were raised and grew up here in Memphis, but it actually started in Florida. So give us a little bit of your childhood going from Jacksonville, Florida, coming here to Memphis. Yeah. So we grew up in Jacksonville from the time I was about five to 14 or so. And every summer we would volunteer um, collecting food for our local food pantry. And that was something that my parents both really thought was important for you to be able to understand the world around you and to give back because we could and something that their parents passed on to them as well. Um, So something that really made a big impression on me when we were little. Um, But also Jacksonville is warm and sunny pretty much the whole year round. (laughs) So, um, you know, being in Memphis, even our winters are a little too long and too cold for me. So definitely miss being close to the beach. If I could pick Memphis up and drop it at the beach, that would be the best case scenario pretty much. I would say most people would probably agree with you. (laughs) I see Andrew here shaking his head. He's our engineer for today. Um, So talk about what your parents do. But my dad's been in the hotel industry his entire life. He started out you know, scraping gum off the stairs when he was 14 in St. Louis. Um, and now he works for um, Choice Hotels up in the D.C. area doing um, sales and management. And my mom um, is the most patient, kind person you will ever meet. Um, she is a special education teacher and has been doing that for as long as I can remember and is amazing at it. So when you talk about really the the volunteerism side as you alluded to going out and serving and i mean i can see that definitely with your mother was that a big part for your father as well oh absolutely my dad he was he was the first one to offer to help if a neighbor needed it um even now you know we um, thought we'd escaped the snow we moved to florida and then to, you know to memphis and so now that they're in maryland he um bought two snow blowers and every time it snows he goes and does all the neighbors driveways um and so they like to pay him back by bringing him brownies, but he actually hates chocolate and doesn't have the heart to tell them. <laughs> so we hope no one's listening there. <laughs> so um, brothers, sisters, talk about other family. Yeah, um, sister in Nashville area um, getting married in October, and my brother's up in St. Louis with the rest of our extended family. Um, and we all you know, volunteered together all growing up, and I think that was really one of the things that we just look forward to as a family. It was something that we always did without really 
without it really occurring to us that that maybe wasn't what other people did. It was just, you know, how you lived your life. Was it built around certain periods of time, like holidays, or is it just something that kind of happened, random chance that said, hey, family, let's go do this and we're going to go serve? It was really, um, I mean, it did happen all year, but especially in the summer um, because my mom was home with us because she was out from school too. And so it was a great way for us to do something together and to do something with the time that we had and to be able to, you know, teach us about things that you don't learn in school. Um, So very heavily in the summer, but we did stuff all year round. Yeah. What's one favorite memory experience? It can be related to volunteerism or not, but just a family memory growing up. We um, like to play practical jokes on each other. (laughs) And so my dad and I, especially, we will um, wrap Christmas presents in like cement and duct tape and whatever, and you have to get out power tools to get it open. And so every Christmas that has become a tradition for us. Wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've heard of wrapping, you know, like the small box in a bigger box, but concrete, that's, that's extreme. Oh yeah. We go all the way in. I guess you're going go big, right? Yep. Definitely. So... Pechnik. I'm trying to remember. I think you've explained this to me before. Polish? We've been told it's German. German. Yes. Okay. Yes. So um, it's funny because when we were growing up, I've always said Pechnik. And one night at dinner, my dad said Pechnik, which is not, you know, a huge difference, but it's when your own name, you know, you'd like to know how to say it. So I thought, I'll settle this. I'll go ask, you know, I'll go ask Grandpa, Grandpa Bob, how, how do you say our last name? And he looked at me like I was crazy, like I should know this, right? I'm 30. And he said, Pechenik, how do you say it? I said, there are three syllables. And my dad is laughing so hard. He was bright red. And apparently he thought it would be easier for people to learn if he just dropped a syllable. So here we are, Pechenik, which is apparently wrong, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Say <laughs> <laughs> a little bit Ancestry.com right there. Yep, definitely. Okay, so you moved to Memphis, and you have degrees, multiple, from the University of Memphis, and your PhD is in industrial organizational psychology. So explain the transition from grade school to then all of a sudden becoming a lady of many degrees. Well, uh, growing up, um, you know, my dad, he always thought that education was the key. And that was something that they really impressed upon us. And so they always helped us with our homework. They always made sure we had every opportunity educationally. And so I just kind of took it to heart and went all the way, I guess. Um, And so I went to the University of Memphis and, um, you know, it has an amazing psychology program, all different types of psychology. And that was just the place for me. So I was at the University of Memphis a very long time. If they gave um, an award for longest running full-time student, that would probably be me. Um, But it it was the right fit and it was the perfect degree. And it's pretty amazing psychology did you know going in that you wanted to apply that to being a catalyst for the community or is it one of those where you were just fascinated by humans and trying to figure out thought processes and how to help and heal I mean why did you go into psychology yeah it definitely started out that way wanting to help people at the individual level and understanding that and then as I got further into it and I learned about industrial organizational psychology I realized that that was talking about change at the group level, the neighborhood level, the city level, and the way that you create change in an organization is very similar to the way that you can create change in a community. And so that was when I started thinking about 
well, what does our community need? What does any community need? And how can I apply these same ideas from what you typically use in the business world in an organizational setting to a community? And that was kind of where the whole thing started. Give me an idea of when you look at your college experience, and we'll tie the PhD into this, but a moment that really stands out that says, you know, this is kind of what started me on this path, or maybe it was a class or a project that that really was formative for you to say, this is what I really enjoy doing. This is something that's going to kind of set it in motion for the direction I'm going to go. When I was in graduate school, I worked on a project for the Navy, and it was giving realistic job previews to people who are thinking about becoming sailors in the Navy. And we would do um, interviews with people who are already in the program so that the people who are thinking about it could see what it was like. And so in the uh, IO psychology world, that's a very common idea, you know, giving these realistic previews. But in the volunteer world, not as much. And so I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but, you know, the Volio program that we designed, it's all about giving a realistic preview of that volunteer experience. And that was really the seed for that was planted years and years ago when I was just starting graduate school. And it's been an amazing, um, really seamless transition taking a field of study that doesn't typically apply to the nonprofit world and being able to apply it in that way. It's pretty amazing. So let's start transitioning over to Volunteer Odyssey. I know that in 2012, you did Mission Memphis. You volunteered for 30 days. Shortly, you know, around that same time period, you did Volunteer Bound, where you took a, a basically a nine-city tour and volunteered and started sharing those experiences. Talk about, you know, where that idea just came from in terms of, hey, I'm going to volunteer for 30 days and write about it and then take a nine-city uh, trip across the U.S. from basically Portland, Oregon to Jacksonville. Uh, so, I mean, you covered the full the full gamut there and volunteer along the way and share about it. So, how did that idea come about? So, the 30 days, um, I knew I was going to be leaving my job in Nashville and coming home to Memphis, which I was thrilled about. But it was the first time that I didn't have anything that I was supposed to be working on. Because from the time I was 18, I was in school. So, I was taking classes. I had a job related to school. I was working on dissertation, something like that. But after I graduated from school and after I quit that job, I had a completely blank slate. And so a very smart person said, well, why don't you just take 30 days to do anything you want, anything at all. And so my first thought was, okay, I'm going to go to the beach. And I quickly ruled that out, even though I do love the beach, which you know now. And I thought, you know, volunteering, like that's just, it's what I've always loved. It's where I feel happiest. That's what I'm going to go and do. And then the writing aspect came about because I thought, well, if I'm going to go all these different places, I had to share it with people because maybe one of these places is going to be a place that they will love. And so the writing really came about as a way to show people, again, kind of that realistic preview idea. Here are all these different amazing ways you can go and volunteer in Memphis. And a lot of them people hadn't heard of before. So that was where the 30 day idea came from. And um, it's funny because it ended up being much harder than I thought it was going to be. Well, that's what I was going to ask is, was it easy to pull off or was it hard? It was hard. It was a lot harder than I was expecting. It took me about three weeks to line up 30 days of volunteering, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. And one of the reasons that led me to start Volunteer Odyssey, um, it was so hard to know in advance if somebody was going to write you back if they did need help. I reached out to more than 100 nonprofits to fill 30 days. And I just thought, there's this is such an amazing experience, but there's got to be a better way to do this. Because if you have four hours to volunteer, you shouldn't spend two of them figuring out where to go. How do we get you to spend all four on volunteering? Right. So 
um, fast forward to actually starting the um, the project, I thought it was going to be like six to eight hours a day, and it ended up being more like 12 or 14 between going everywhere, writing the blogs, that kind of thing. And so I thought, okay, at the end of those 30 days, I'm going to take a day off. Yeah, but so you need a vacation from your 30-day vacation of volunteering. Right? And uh, I had signed up for the St. Jude Half Marathon, which was the day after I finished. <laughs> so not the most relaxing way to end, but certainly, you know, a fitting tie off to that. I- I'm seeing a theme of overachiever, though. That's good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just jam pack it Let's all Let's just do it all. In. Let's do it all. And enjoy yeah. the ride. And then I had an opportunity just a couple days after that um, and right before the Christmas holidays to do this trip, the volunteer bound trip from Portland down to Jacksonville. And I kind of thought, you know, I'm tired, but now or never, right? I mean, if I don't go now, I may never go. So I went. So did you drive from Memphis to Portland? And I'm assuming there's got to be a friend or a family connection or something there that would lead you to Portland versus anywhere else. And then drive all the way across down to Jacksonville? So I had a friend who was moving from Portland to Nashville and was going to be driving. And so that was kind of the inkling of where it started. And so I flew to Portland and then she and I traveled part of the way together. And then she ended um, about halfway and then I finished by myself. Yeah. What would you say, especially on that? Okay. So single female, obviously uh, very smart in terms of um, your degrees and you're already making a difference and you're already volunteering, but that's a pretty big gamble for someone, especially now looking back, like I'm thinking if my kids did this, um, to go on a cross-country trek volunteering by yourself. What was that like? I mean, what did you gain from that? Because I imagine that's got to be a great just personal stance of pride Mm -hmm. to be able to say that I kind of did this on my own and, and had an amazing experience in the process. Yeah, I think, um, you know, with a lot of the the things that I've done, I feel like I can't really say I did it on my own um, because there are so many people involved. I mean, the people who helped get me there, the people who let me come and volunteer with them. So, you know, everything volunteerism related is really a team effort. And, um, you know, so I had a lot of help and support along the way. Um, but believe it or not, I am um, definitely more of an introvert. And so the idea of traveling across the country, mostly by myself and showing up to a different place every day with people I don't know is, it's, it's tough. Um, and I remember flying to Portland and it was at night. I had a really late flight and I was looking at all the other people on the plane and I was just wondering, you know, where, where's everybody else going? You know, I always wonder that when I fly, like, are you, are you, are you on a journey? Are you starting a journey? Are you ending a journey? Is anybody else on this plane as nervous as I am about what I'm doing? Um, but it was, it was amazing. Um, the people that we met, the places that we saw, um, I wouldn't do it in the winter again, probably. Um, but I would love to do it again. And there's just, there's so much to learn about best practices and volunteering and how people get matched with volunteer opportunities. And we hit nine cities, but there's so many more. And I would love to do it again if I had the opportunity. It's totally dumb. This is a very random aside, but I just got back from, from flying myself and off the plane, someone says, um, God uses flying because you become so much closer to him through turbulence. <laughs> it's like, yes, indeed. You're talking about just all the thoughts going through your head. Um, okay, so let's transition from that to actually starting Volunteer Odyssey. So um, yeah, Volunteer Odyssey, actually, let's, let's add context for those that live outside the Mid-South because it's pretty cool. We have um, followers of this podcast all around the world. So explain Volunteer Odyssey. 
So Volunteer Odyssey's goal is to match each individual volunteer with his or her ideal opportunity and to tell those stories. The idea being that if we can help you find something that you love and you look forward to, it's not just checking the box anymore. It becomes part of your life and something that makes your life fuller. So, okay, that's the context in this. Where did it start? So obviously you have the 30 days, you go on the nine city trek, you come back, and when does it hit you? <gasps> Volunteer Odyssey. Yeah. Um, so when I was doing Mission Memphis, um, around day seven of 30 is when I started to think, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> um, and day seven was when it started to feel hard but in a good way. Like I had really, you know, pushed myself, like I was challenging myself. And that was when I started thinking, how can I package this up and give this to other people? Because it was hard, but it was rewarding. So day seven was when I started to really kind of think about it. And then when I was traveling around the country, I realized it's pretty hard to find quality volunteer opportunities everywhere. You know, it's not just something that um, was difficult to do in Memphis. And that was when I started thinking, well, maybe there's an opportunity here. And then I remember when I got to Jacksonville and I was volunteering at the same you know, food pantry I did when I was a kid and I just felt like it was all coming together. And I started to get this idea to provide the sort of volunteer journey, essentially, in one week forms to people who were in between jobs or who didn't know exactly what that next step was going to be. Um, I'd watched both of my parents go through unemployment at the same time, back around 2008, um, which I know is hard for a lot of people. And they, you know, they were still them. They volunteered and they helped other people and it made such a difference. And that was when I, you know, that was what I drew from and started thinking about, okay, I'm going to put this program together for people who are job seeking. And that's what I'm going to do when I get home. So got home. A um, couple days before Christmas, no presents, of course, because <laughs> I've been not here. Um, but I just couldn't let go of the idea. And at the time, I, I didn't want to start a nonprofit. I didn't know anything about starting a nonprofit. Um, but I couldn't let go of the idea because it had been so powerful for me. And I just wanted to give it to other people. And that was really where the whole thing started. And so the name Volunteer Odyssey really came out of it's this journey, right? You're kind of taking a leap of faith. You're you're chronicling it. You're going out and you're trying these new things. You're having these adventures. And it's about really connecting with your city and finding yourself along the way. That's where the whole idea came from. You find yourself in the service of others. The mm -hmm. great Gandhi quote. How much of that, when you look at starting Volunteer Odyssey and obviously providing the experience that you yourself had been able to enjoy but also when you look at volunteerism, there, there's so many wins, right? It's, it's a win, 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 win that keeps going on. Mm -hmm. So you get to immerse yourself. You get to build your skill set. You get to interact with other leaders on the board, the executive director, the team of the nonprofit. So all the way around, you're, you're giving back and you're making a difference. And you and I talk about this often is you're making a difference for all the right reasons, but you're also helping yourself personally and professionally. So you're fine-tuning your skill sets and you're building a sphere of influence that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. And you're doing it in the context of helping others, which is great. And also when you talk about where trust is built, trust is built by doing the things when they don't expect it. So in other words, they're not expecting me to come in and lend my time and volunteer. But the fact that I'm doing it on my own free will, you're thinking, wait a second, that guy's not getting paid for this. Maybe he's someone that has a big heart that I can trust. And mm -hmm. then you see him in action and you see that you can deliver results. And next thing you know, many times, either the nonprofit hires you 
or a success with someone being on the board or someone that you interact with says, hey, that's a man or a woman that I want on my team and next thing you know, you're hired. So when you're talking about, you know, at the, the start of this, working with individuals that are going through a transition, how much of that played a, a role? Yeah, I mean, it's been really amazing and rewarding to work with people who are kind of in a transition point at their lives and help them find something that they love and that in doing that helps other people. Um, so we have a couple great stories. Um, so Megan, she moved here from Iowa just because Memphis was the place that she wanted to come. And so she went through our job seekers program and one of the places we sent her was the Carpenter Art Garden. And so she became a regular volunteer there, was there every day helping. That was her spot, you know, she'd found it. And two weeks later, they hired her and she's still there. So if anybody's ever been to the Carpenter Art Garden or volunteered there, if you meet Megan, she found it through our job seekers program. And she told me last week, actually, she's like, I don't know if I would still be in Memphis if I hadn't gone through that program, if I hadn't met Volunteer Odyssey and didn't have this job. She's like, this is why I'm here, which is so humbling and amazing. Um, And I think, you know, people, it's easy to fall in love with Memphis if you can get a foot in the door somewhere. And to me, volunteering is just the perfect way to do that. And so, you know, seeing people find places that they love to volunteer and makes them light up is pretty much the best thing you can do. I think it's just, that's why we do what we do. It's amazing. And I would echo when you talk about the relationship side of engaging someone in a city, that echoes anywhere, any city. I mean, so much of what draws people but also keeps them there and inspires them are the people. It's the relationships, the friendships that you form. And to your point, that's where volunteerism really um, allows you to build some very powerful relationships. So carry that forward a little bit because when you talk about the growth, you've expanded to where you're now helping corporations, you're putting up all sorts of volunteer opportunities, you're coordinating them, large scale, small scale, um, you know, kind of everything in between. So everything focused on volunteerism. And then you also have Volio, which you kind of alluded to as well. So give us some of the other things that you're doing now with Volunteer Odyssey. Sure. So I'll start with uh, volunteers, which is our volunteer happy hour. And that is something that we use to get um, people, especially sort of the young professional crowd, really engaged in the community. So it's our monthly volunteer happy hour. And so we go to a different nonprofit every month. We kind of travel around the city and we do a big task for them. Like we put together all of their bags for race day or all of their um, you know, gifts for a fundraiser, that kind of thing. And we bring you know, 20 people with us. And so it's something that if you did it by yourself, it would take you 20 hours. But if we can show up with 20 volunteers, we can knock it out that evening. And so it's a great way to visit nonprofits and to find your perfect spot, but it's also a good way to meet other people who are like-minded and to make friends. Because here's the thing, when we get people who are new to Memphis, we've got 60 to 90 days to get them to love it. And if they don't, they're going to start thinking, okay, I'll be here a year or two, and then I'm going to start looking. So how do we get people to fall in love with the city? How do we retain this talent that we need? And that's one of the ways that we do it. And so we started Volunteers about two years ago. We've done 30 or so of them to this point. And now when we post it, it fills up within four hours. So it's going gangbusters. I mean, it's amazing to see people respond to it. And we just make it easy and we make it fit into their lives, which is great. Um, And then the other big program that we're focused on right now is Volio. Um, You can remember it like Volunteer Portfolio. And it is a collection of videos that we made about what it's like to volunteer at different nonprofits around Memphis. So you get to actually meet the volunteer coordinator. 
You see the door you would walk through when you get there, which is a big deal for people who, you know, are a little more introverted, who need, a, you know, a little more assurance before or they get, get there. Or could get lost. Or it could get lost, yeah. <laughs> That's physically the door I'm going to walk through. Okay, exactly. I can find that. Exactly. And you get to meet the people that you would help and you see what you'll actually be doing. So it's all centered around how do we help you find something that's the right fit for you, your knowledge, your skills, your ability, your schedule. All of that is how we decide what programs we do and how we offer them. Not many groups can say that they've received a check from a mermaid, (laughs) but you can. So (laughs) what (laughs) you can explain that one if you want, or I can just leave it hanging there for listeners. But um, sure, sure. Talk about the growth. I mean, because I I think it's really cool to see, you know, where you started. And I still remember, you know, having. Uh, coffee with you just talking about some of these ideas that you were working on and all of a sudden now to see where it is today and the impact you're having it's phenomenal and so you know definitely no surprise that corporations that foundations that groups are seeing what you're doing and they're saying hey we want to support you including mermaids so um, (laughs) talk about just you know kind of the the pride if you will of the growth and the sustainability and stability of volunteer odyssey so I guess I need to address the mermaid thing first. <laughs> you can. You don't have to. It's, it's always fun just to leave it there. We um we got a check out of the out of the blue from Chicken of the Sea a couple years ago, and they gave us our check presentation in the middle of AutoZone Field from their mermaid. Uh, I think her name is Catalina is the mermaid's name, um, and that's definitely one of the strangest, most amazing things that's ever happened. Like almost literally, a check came out of the sky to us when we were first starting, and it was or out of the sea. So needed, yes, straight out of the sea, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's almost kind of surreal. We um, we just turned three, so we're officially three-year-old nonprofit. And I vividly remember the conversation you and I had. Um, and for, you know, anybody listening who hasn't actually met Jeremy in person, like, he didn't know me from Adam, you know? I mean, I was just starting. We'd never met. And he took the time to sit down and have coffee with me and, you know, say, well, tell me what you want to do and how can I help? And here are some ideas. And that was so, you know, formative when we were starting out. And I still think about that and really appreciate that. So our growth has been really incredible. And in some ways, it seems like it's been a lot longer than three years. In some ways, it seems like it's been a lot shorter. But we've partnered with more than 40 nonprofits now. We have five different programs. And, you know, there's so much for us to do in terms of connecting people with volunteer opportunities. The only place to go is up. There's so much more that we can do. So obviously you're an entrepreneur as part of this. I mean, you yourself, you said you didn't necessarily go in wanting to start a nonprofit, but ultimately what you've created is a is a machine. I mean, it's a, it's a do-good machine. What's been one of the biggest challenges you've had to face? I think one of the biggest challenges is just trying to decide what to do and what not to do. Um, I feel to me, there's almost this like sense of urgency. Like we have all these issues and all these challenges in the city and we desperately need volunteers. And I feel that. I think about that every day. It weighs on me. And so trying to do things in a way that's sustainable and not just going after every idea that I have and trying to rein it in and focus on what's smart, um, that's tough just because I, I think about it all the time and always have ideas. So that's probably the toughest part is trying to dial it back and focus and not chase everything. So there are a lot of ideas we still have that are sort of on the back burner. And it's been a challenge for me to just say, okay, that's a back burner idea, you know, and stick them there for later. When you look at the trends in philanthropy and corporate philanthropy and volunteerism, 
you know, nationwide, it tends to hover around 25%. And for certain areas, that's a, a little bit of a misnomer because many times they don't count PTA hours or volunteering with their sports leagues or things like that. So, or even church service. I mean, there's things that can factor in. But when you look at it, right now, the, the trends have been going down, sadly, when you talk about volunteerism in, in America and especially among white collar employees. What would you say, especially for other cities that are saying we've we've got to do something because we can't all the money in the world isn't going to fix broken systems if we don't have the right people in place. Exactly. People physically solve problems. We need volunteers. You can't go in and just say, Oh, well here, Timmy, here's a dollar, go get better grades, right? Like that's that's ridiculous. It's mm-hmm. somebody sitting down with them, helping him with his homework, tutoring him, teaching him how to play basketball, baseball, soccer, tennis, whatever it is. It's the interaction, it's the relationship, it's the love being shared. So it's getting people physically involved so that they can see the change, be the change, and for our nation, lead us in a, in a positive direction, right? Right. So all, all cities across America are facing this challenge. And as you said, it's keeping you up at night. But what would you offer to other cities, to other people, other groups that may be trying to do something similar to what you're doing here in Memphis to give them some advice to help increase engagement with volunteers? So two big things. One is that we need to match people at the individual level with something that they will love. One of the ways I think we've been going wrong is by focusing too much on big group things. And there is value in group things. I'm not diminishing that at all. We do group things as well. But where you get people to fall in love with something is getting them in the door at a place that is the right fit for them as an individual. And that is so key and it's so important. The other thing I would say is that the way we've gone about um, getting people to volunteer is very reactive. And so the messaging from a lot of volunteer centers is when you're ready to volunteer, let us know and we'll help you find the right fit. And in order to really move that needle that you're talking about, the volunteerism rate, it's our job to be proactive. We need to go out and say, hey, you, come with me, volunteer, right? Maybe not quite that aggressively because I might scare people off, but we really need to go after people and invite them to come because most people say that they want to volunteer and that they would go if they were invited, but it's not something that's front of mind. And so until we reach a tipping point where volunteering, volunteering is the rule rather than the exception, we really have to go out and put it in front of people and invite them to come as opposed to waiting for them to come to us and say, I'm ready. That's where we really need to make a big shift. Love it. Flip it over to advice for nonprofits because they're struggling with this big time, whether it's board engagement, volunteer engagement. You're seeing now where you know they're creating young professional versions, they're creating advisory boards, they have boards that meet only in the mornings, during the weekday, in the evenings, on the weekends. They're trying to find ways to meet people where they are, but it's a big struggle. So what advice would you give for nonprofits on how to increase volunteer engagement? One of, I think, one of the biggest challenges to volunteer engagement is the process from the time a volunteer expresses interest to the time the volunteer finishes that first shift. Because what we're seeing is that there's a huge difference in the way that volunteers do what we call onboarding. So just as if you think about an employee at a job, from the time that employee applies to the time they finish day one, there's a lot of things that happen in that time period. So as an example, if you're a volunteer and you reach out, one, you may never hear back from anybody, which has certainly happened. Or you might hear back and they say, okay, download this form, print it out, fax it to us. 
Okay, that volunteer is probably not coming. So think through that volunteer experience. Um, we do some volunteer mystery shopping. So we'll have people go through the process and evaluate it and give feedback. And most people don't ever go through their own process. So they don't understand how many steps there are and how long it takes to get involved. So that's one of the big ones is simplifying that process for getting started. And the other one is telling people what to expect on the front end. So, you know, Volio that we were talking about where you actually meet the volunteer coordinator, see what you would be doing, that helps people know in advance if that's something that they wanna do or not. And so if they are willing to do it, then they'll go through, you know, that background check. They'll they'll print out and fax in that form if it's something that they're really, really determined to do. Um, but also if it's not the right spot for them, they know that on the front end and then they don't go through that process. And some people think that's a bad thing, but it's a good thing because you don't want to get that volunteer, get in the door day one, and they've gone through this whole process and say, oh, this isn't the place for me. You want them to know that on the front end. So helping them fall in love with it early and streamlining that process so they can get straight to work as soon as they can without compromising safety, that's where people really need to focus. One of the other things that you do very, very well, which I actually think is a big part of your success outside of making it easy and turnkey and being very cognitive of the experience side is the storytelling. So taking pictures, video, sharing it not only with the volunteers, but with the nonprofit, the corporations, all the parties that are involved. And you know, many times you go in and even you know, recently we were in Jacksonville serving with Samaritan's Feet, washing the kids' feet. Well, the whole team was so immersed in the experience that no one was taking pictures. And I caught myself. I was like, <laughs> wait a second. We have the same problem you know, when we do it here in Memphis. I'm going to step back and I'm going to take pictures and you know, get B-roll footage and get interviews of people while they're serving saying, mm-hmm. what are we doing here today? And it's all those things that you don't naturally think about because you get so engrossed in what you're doing. And then all of a sudden it's over and you're like, wait a second, we don't have anything to share that experience. Yep. And we live obviously in such a, a social media you know, driven society where it's in everybody's best interest, the nonprofit, you yourself, the corporation, if you're part of a corporate team, to be able to have that recap, that story to share and to inspire others to do it you know, down the road. Talk about your philosophy and, and kind of share with us the, the social side of what you're doing, the storytelling side. Yeah, so the storytelling is so key because the more stories we can share about what it's like to volunteer, the more front of mind it becomes, the more likely people are to talk about it, the more likely they are to find something that they think that they'll really like. And you know, stories, videos, pictures, bring it to life. In, in a way that nothing else can. And you're right, like sometimes you get so wrapped up in what you're doing that you forget to take pictures and it's hard to be mad about that, right? Because you were so into it and that's great. Um, but the stories are really what draw people in and help them feel connected. And that's the reason that we focus so much on those stories. We're able to highlight those nonprofits. We're able to highlight what we're doing. Now, when we send our job seekers out to volunteer, they are supposed to be taking pictures and writing blogs, things like that. And a lot of them at the beginning um, are either hesitant to take pictures or forget to take pictures because they're so involved, like you were saying. But one of the things that we say is, you know, do it in a respectful way, right? Ask permission, make sure it's okay. But then, you know, explain, like we're writing a story about what it's like to volunteer here so more people will come and help. And that's really the key thing about storytelling for us is that a lot of people don't want to do it because they feel like it's bragging, but we need to not think about it as bragging. We need to think about it as recruiting because we need those volunteers to go and recruit other volunteers. And that's how we're really going to start to make that shift by inviting other people. And that's exactly what those stories are doing. 
So what advice, I've got one more question, then we'll flip it over to something we do, kind of a rapid fire set of questions. It's the fun wrap up. It's my favorite part, but um, it's fun. So what advice would you give those living in other cities that say, I want to volunteer and maybe they just moved to a new city, but I don't know where to start. I don't know the questions to ask, how to reach out, how to take that first step. What does the first step look like? Yeah, so if you're if you're outside of Memphis, most cities, especially most mid to large cities, have some sort of volunteer center or volunteer resource. So I would say you can always start there. But the other thing I would say is that think about what things are the most important to you. Make a list of causes. So what do you what do you read about at night? Right? Is it um, your local humane society? Is it human trafficking? Is it illiteracy? What are those things? And then go and find those organizations in your community that do those things. Find something that you love and that you want to work on and start there. You know, you're the one who knows yourself better than anybody else, right? And so think about what things, those things are that are important to you and go for them. All right, so here's where we, we need some like fancy music, Andrew. So we're gonna, I'm gonna put him on this. We need like a lightning round, you know, some sort of crazy like you know music that comes in and, and segues into this. But so here, here's the fun. It's just it's quick answers. First thing that comes to mind. Um, so short, sweet, just fun. So what's the most recent book you've read, or a recent book you've read? How to Lie with Statistics. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to follow up to that? <laughs> yeah, give us so. <laughs> give us a Cliff Notes version of what that's about. Sure. Um, so I teach business research in the MBA program at Christian Brothers University here. And so it, it's all about understanding your numbers and how you can go different ways with those numbers. There's no such thing as proven. There's no such thing as a clear answer. And how to lie with statistics is about being able to see when numbers might be misleading and how to make sure you're drawing the right conclusions because everybody can spin stats in their own way. So I'm not up to anything devious. Don't worry. <laughs> You're one of those that I don't think anybody, you know, if you, if you know them or like family, you can't get anything by you. So <laughs> I'm glad my thing. family's not here to speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, a recent vacation or trip? We went to New Zealand in June, which was pretty amazing. Um, we'd never been before, although June is their winter. So if you go, definitely go in their summer. But it was spectacular. The people were so friendly. The food was amazing. It's it's gorgeous there. And you say we because that included? Uh, Eric Matthews, who runs Startco. Um, he got invited to speak down there about um, global entrepreneurship. So I've got my own favorite version for you. Um, but one of your favorite speaking engagements. You do a lot of speaking. So what, what's one of your favorite speaking uh, experiences or engagements? You know, I think my favorite ones actually are when it's something with a small group and it's more conversational. Um, so the the big ones are good. They, you know, get us a lot of reach and a lot of exposure, but I'm really more comfortable in smaller groups where I get to ask them, you know, what they like and what's important to them. And we kind of do some volunteer matching along the way. So that, that's probably where I feel the most comfortable, I would say. Favorite meal? Oh, man. That's a tough one. In Memphis, in general, ever? In general. In general. Um, probably anything on the beach. Okay. Does that count? Yeah. Seafood on the beach. Seafood on the beach. Okay, yeah. that works. So favorite restaurant then, or a favorite restaurant. I'm sure you have many, but a favorite restaurant here locally. Uh, we spend uh, a good bit of time at Bari. Bari is one of our favorite spots, definitely. What's a favorite spot outside of Memphis? Restaurant or mm -hmm. just restaurant? Restaurant. 
Um, we just went to restaurant August for the first time down in New Orleans, and that was pretty amazing. So what's a, a, another favorite city you like to visit? Um, San Diego. I really love, um, probably not surprised, warm beach city. That's kind of my MO. Um, beautiful and um, lifty trail running there, food on the beach. You know, there's there's definitely a theme here, I think. <laughs> so favorite music? If you say reggae, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say anything sort of like live singer songwriter is really my favorite. That's That's what I love most. What do you do to relax? You know... I'm still trying to figure that out. If anybody has any suggestions, let me know. Um, I do like to volunteer, um, although it's getting harder to do that as a way to relax because then I'm always, you know, thinking about what we can do better. Um, I love to ride my bike on the green line. I love to cook, um, love to read. Yeah, those are probably the big ones. So when you're cooking healthy, not so healthy? It depends. Um, my favorite things are things that are kind of technical, like that you could maybe succeed or fail. Um, but mostly I just like cooking for family and friends and just like feeding people. I think that's something I got from my from my mom. So do you follow a recipe or no, you just whatever sounds good? Yeah, good. not normally. Gotcha. Wake up early, go to bed late. Definitely a night owl. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to get in trouble for reading under the covers, anything I could get my hands on. And my dad would come in and he'd take my flashlight and I'd wait a couple minutes and I'd get out my other flashlight and he'd come in a few minutes later and he goes, I invented the backup flashlight. Give it to me. <laughs> so I used to get in trouble all the time for staying up way too late and reading. Um, a favorite motto or saying? Gosh, there's so many. Um I think one of my favorites is probably an Anne Frank quote that we use sometimes, which is um, how wonderful that no one need wait a single moment to start changing the world or improving the world. I just love that idea because we don't we don't need anything. We don't need to do anything. We don't need to have anything. We can just decide to start. We can do it. What an amazing idea, especially from somebody so young. It's incredible. Who is one or who are some of your mentors? Who do you go for advice and inspiration? Yeah, um, I'm really fortunate. There are a lot of people on that list, so hopefully I don't leave too many people out. Um, Sally Hines, the executive director of MIFA, she has been really great. Um, Natalie Wilson, who works at Shelby Farms, has been phenomenal. Um, let's see, Meg Crosby at PeopleCap, Melissa Whitby at Bridges, um, Russ Williams at Archer Malmo. Um, yeah, there's so many people who have given me advice along the way. I've I'm sure I'm leaving off so many incredible people. I feel really grateful that we've gotten so much help. Sports, any sports you like to play or watch? I'm terrible at sports, <laughs> so maybe not play. Um, to watch uh, anything Grizzlies, Tigers, for the most part. And we're from St. Louis originally, so I'm still sort of a loyal Cardinals baseball fan. What do you hope your parents are proud of you for? What's one thing you want your family to be proud of you for? I think just being kind and trying to make a difference, trying to get other people to make a difference. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that that's all they really want. I think they think it's cool. I do big talks and stuff, but at the end of the day, I think as long as I'm you know kind to other people, that's all they really want. 
Very nice. So tell everyone where they can learn more about Volunteer Odyssey, especially for those here in the Mid-South that want to get involved. Where would you send them? So you can start at our website. That's volunteerodyssey.com. Um, with the other big place I'd suggest they check is Volio, which is the virtual volunteer fair we talked about, and that's voliovolunteers.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter. So for all of us that uh, have been listening, what, what's your preference? Sarah Pechnik? Sarah Pechnik? Sarah Pechnik? <laughs> What's your preference from here on forward? So I'm sticking with Sarah Pechnik, um, but I always know people mean me because they say Sarah and just avoid the last name altogether, and that works too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you can tell, she's absolutely brilliant. She loves what she does. She makes a huge impact. She is a change maker. Sarah Pechnik, thank you very much for coming on the Changemakers podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to the Changemakers podcast. To learn more about our guests and to share your story of leading by example and creating change, visit us online at thelpbc.com. Connect with us online using at the LPBC or follow the conversation using the hashtag Changemakers. Now think big, start small, and act now. Be a changemaker.